crazy. Hi, this is Serendipity Soup. It's a podcast about serendipity, funnily enough. It's about success, failure, hard work and pure dumb luck. But it's not a podcast about celebrities or Silicon Valley billionaires because, frankly, they're not normal. So this isn't about taking lessons from thinly disguised humblebrags. Instead, it's a community of ordinary people with something interesting to say about how their life has turned out. If that sounds like you, get in touch. You can email me using soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com. There might be happy endings, or there might not, because life isn't a story. It's much more complicated and wonderful than that. So, wherever you are in the world, and wherever you are in your life, I hope you'll find something useful to take away from these conversations. Hello, and welcome to Serendipity Soup, the antidote to celebrity success podcasts. My name's Matt Georges, and this month I'm talking to my very first international guest. Oh yes. Her name's Rebecca Alley, and she's also the first guest on my podcast who I didn't know before asking whether she'd like to be interviewed, so another first there. I came across Becca on LinkedIn, where she posts on a variety of subjects, particularly about her autism, her Jewish faith, and her sexual identity. There's been a trend and a backlash on LinkedIn for some time about what is suitable material to be posted on that platform. The phrase go back to Facebook is one I'm seeing a lot more and it's one that Becca has occasionally faced. As regular listeners will know, while Serendipity Soup is a podcast about careers, I haven't yet found a guest willing or able to disentangle their work and their non-work lives. The two are so intertwined that it makes no sense to do so. It's like asking a professional ice skater to only do their routine facing forwards. You'd still get what most of us would think of as an impressive performance, but it wouldn't show off the full spectrum of skills and abilities that that individual is capable of. I appreciate that's a relatively recent view of the world, but I do wonder whether it's actually a return to something much older that's been covered over by the rise of large corporations in the last 200 years or so. At a human level, if you know that someone has been recently bereaved or or is facing some other personal challenge, you don't go to work with them and then expect them to be completely unaffected by that. Asking how people are and making accommodations for everyone's circumstances isn't a woke fad. It's more or less how humanity has functioned since we first emerged as a species. Anyway, I digress. The point is that I've learned so much from Becca's posts, and I'm sure many others have too. Again, there's a trend at the moment to criticise people who express an opinion but don't have the lived experience of the thing they're expressing an opinion about. While I completely understand the reasons for this, Taken to its logical extreme, this argument says that no one can have an opinion about anything anyone else does because they haven't lived that person's life. You can't have an opinion about what I just said because you aren't me. You didn't grow up in the same place and time as I did and you didn't experience the same things. I think there's a more compassionate centre ground on this, which is to say that no, I don't have your lived experience. So before I express an opinion, I'm going to learn about it. For me, Becca's posts are a window into a world I previously knew nothing about. What is it like to be autistic and to work in the high-pressure, low-status environment of fast food service? What's it like to be Jewish in a world where someone thinks it's okay to vandalise Auschwitz? I will never personally experience these things, and my guess is quite a lot of you listening won't either. I know it's not fashionable to say it in today's social media world, but you don't even have to express your opinion. Imagine that. You just need to be open-minded enough to stay quiet and listen to someone else's story. And that's really what Serendipity Soup is about. Listening to other people's stories without the filter of an agenda. So, what's Becca's story? 
Well, she works as a project management officer at a large bank now, but started out her career wanting to be a marine scientist studying dolphins and sea turtles. That didn't work out, so she ended up in fast food, an industry she maintains builds skills that are generally under-recognised by society as a whole. She was diagnosed with autism relatively late in life, and she and her colleagues have learned to work with that diagnosis. In fact, Becca says, and I agree with her, that the idea of a one-way street where you have to work around someone's perceived disability isn't a good way of looking at this issue. Instead, Becca talks eloquently about how her autism has driven her to improve the way her company works and how that has been recognised by senior managers. I come back to the point I made when introducing Alan Butler's episode. Coping, in inverted commas, with a diagnosis like autism in Becca's case, or dyslexia in Alan's, or depression in my own, actually means taking on behaviours that look suspiciously like those recommended by life and work coaches to make every one of us more effective. For example, Becca had a colleague check what she was planning to say in this interview. Not to censor her voice, but just to double-check she wasn't going to say anything she might later regret. Having the humility to do that is something I would certainly have benefited from in some past work situations. Anyway, sorry that was a bit of a longer introduction than normal, but Becca's story throws up so many issues I feel really strongly about, so I couldn't resist. I will retreat from the spotlight next month, I promise. Right, housekeeping. No swearies at all this time round, but there is, as you probably gathered, some talk about online hate, especially of the anti-Semitic variety, and about mental health, so just a warning if that's not something you want to hear about right now. Other than that, I think we're ready to go. Time for a taste of Serendipity Soup. So my name is Becca, and I'm strongly interested in Judaism, which is my religion, and then plants, which is my special interest, and my cats, who are my children. But I also have a passion for cats in general, as they can have like really tough lives, which I know because one, di- one of them was dying on the street when I found Ooh. her. I actually took her to a shelter who had to like nurse her back to health because it was like way over my head in terms of how weak she was. And then I got her afterwards. And then I work as a project management officer, which is uh, shortened to PMO. And that will be what I say for the rest of the time is I'll say PMO, not project management officer. And I'm actually a co-lead for my team at a large bank. And I'm serving on two autism advisory boards, one for the Autism Society of North Carolina and one for UNC Teach, which is the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Teach. And I'm on the Linkit Program Steering Committee, which is an autism job internship program through the state of North Carolina. It's through North Carolina Business Committee for Education. So I'm the, I came on board to my company through that program and then... I now serve as an autistic representative on their board. So listeners will have picked up you're from the the United States. Roughly whereabouts in the US are you from? So I'm from North Carolina. I'm from, well, I would say more it's the suburbs of a city called Winston-Salem, but it's so far out in the country that you got fields and tobacco. Lots of tobacco. And then now I live very close to the capital of North Carolina. I work in Research Triangle Park, and I live about 45 minutes away from there in, again, the suburbs. So when you gave the introduction there, one of the things that you you talked about quite a lot there was autism. And essentially, this is how I came across you on LinkedIn. I'd been following you for quite a while on LinkedIn, uh, because you post quite a lot about autism. And I was 
learning quite a lot from your posts. I was just wondering if you could share with the listeners what it's like for you recording a podcast as someone who is autistic, and in particular why we've done quite a lot of preparation beforehand so that if you need to, you can read out your answers. Can you just enlighten people as to how that feels for you? So... I have a great deal of anxiety from, and I go into every speaking engagement I have well prepped. I listened to an audiobook once by somebody named John Ronson. I mm-hmm. love his work. It's called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And it's about people who made mistakes on social media and it ruins their lives. I am afraid of that happening to me. And then the reason that I put myself out there at all is because I feel like my story is unusual and could have impact on others' lives. And I'm lucky to have a great team behind me that helps me prepare for these things and helps me from making a fool of myself. I choose to write my answers and read them to allow individuals at my company to read them and suggest edits. And I have one person in particular who does a fantastic job of that. She has just left my company. But by the time that she left, I just learned so much from her. She really had very little more suggestions to make. Things like my wording is very abrasive. I know this about myself and I can recognize it now, but it could come across and sometimes still does it just terribly. And actually today of this material, she actually only had one clarity edit, which I was very accomplished about. This was actually the last thing she edited for me. So... Yeah, she, I mean, she, I can reach out to her on LinkedIn anytime I want, but it's still sad that we no longer work together. I was really struck by that, that you, as you say, you'd done a lot of preparation for this interview and it's all written out so that you're clear what you're going to say. But mm-hmm. it was really, and I was thinking, well, that's a lot of preparation for Becca, but I hadn't realised that there were other people helping you as well. And I was just really taken aback by that, the support that you were given by the people around you in work to do this was, yeah, it was really heartwarming, actually, I thought. Yeah, and it, it's it's all above and beyond, honestly. Mm. Like, that is, I mean, this is not really, she was an external communications person, so it was her job to help people with speaking engagements, but oh, that's more along the lines of, far more important people than me. People at my level don't normally have this kind of invitations. The thing is, is like she didn't just edit my work. Like she would sit down with me and say, here's the justification for this change or here's where this verbiage comes across as abrasive. And it actually even went beyond like prepping me for something external. She and others for a very long time, and even sometimes still today, if I really am sending an email to somebody senior, will read my emails. I just reach out to them and I say, I don't know how I feel about this email. Can you just check it out? And I have managing directors who have, I I reached out to them and I was like, look, everybody's on vacation and I have to send this email. Can you read it? And a managing director dropped everything. So yep send it to me. And he sent it back and he was like, this is fine. Thanks. I was told one, I am well known for being a very positive person and people enjoy that because I am a very supportive and engaging person. But the other thing that people have told me is it is somewhat unusual for the, for people to be willing to ask for help 
And I am very aware at this point in time what my weaknesses are and where I need help to learn. And had these people not helped me, I would not have been successful. Can you just take us through what you did before your current job and then how you got into the work you're in now? I had a rocky road to get here, and I'm actually trying to find my answer right now, to be perfectly honest. So to say that I had an eclectic job history would be an understatement. One of my first jobs was right out of high school. I worked in autism one-on-one support, and it was really funny because the actually the agency that I worked at I then I got diagnosed at 23 and I applied for support through that agency. So you worked for them without knowing that you were autistic? Yes. I was able to teach from mistakes that I had made, but at the same time, I didn't know why I had made those mistakes in life. The example I give is when I didn't understand the concept of a white lie and how important they are. I told my best friend in high school that her new haircut was horrific. (laughs) My train of thought was, well, if I tell her this, she can go get it fixed. Mm -hmm. She never spoke to me again. That was the end of our friendship. Yeah. How old were you then? I don't know. I was in ninth grade in the United States. So So, so we're talking kind of mid-teens, something like that? Yes. Yeah. So then I did learn... There is a line where you don't cross depending on a relationship, where honesty isn't always the best policy, (laughs) but it's so complicated. And now that I am diagnosed, I was able to get structured sort of rules of I at this point I go into telling people when I meet them I am autistic do not ask my opinion unless you want the answer because the thing is even if I do try to tell a white lie my face gives it away yeah I can't control my face like my facial expressions so and my tone gives it away so I can tell you no those pants don't make you look fat but you're going to know. I struggle with the same thing, which is that I've also had problems with white lies, which is that you think, well, why are you asking me this if you don't really want my honest opinion? And, you know, my wife even now will say to me, she has paper it over. It's fine. They don't really want to know. And it's just interesting that it is complicated. Even for somebody who isn't autistic, that area of life is so complicated, isn't it? And it just becomes more complicated as you get older and you move into work. Yeah. But it's nice now because I have friends around me who, I mean, they don't ask unless they want an answer. (laughs) And they do ask because they want an answer. And I will say that I I have a very big policy of like honesty at work because I mean, I would hope that when nobody would come up to me in the office and ask me how their dress makes them look, that's never occurred. (laughs) So I don't know what would happen. But and I wrote a post on this for something like I don't know the answer. I don't care what level you are. I'm telling you, I don't know the answer. I won't lie or make something up and say, this is the answer or try to sugarcoat something. I will say, I don't know the answer. 
I will get back to you in X amount of time, and I'm going to find the answer by going to talk to mostly one specific coworker who does have all the answers. And that builds trust. The fact that, like, my friends trust me not to lie to them and about if they're asking for my opinion. And I work, I have a very good reputation. And I also will say, I think this is the answer. Don't quote me on that. I really want to go look it up and confirm. So I worked in autism one-on-one support. I moved away and you have to do a certain amount of in-person training. So I couldn't. So I left that because of proximity to the location where I had to do the in-person trainings. And I had three internships in dolphin and sea turtle research, two of which went fine, one of which I was let go from. And I worked in a movie theater for a bit, which wasn't particularly successful there either. But I finally transitioned into full-time into fast food, where I eventually found the skills I needed to be successful and independent. And I sort of started climbing the ladder there. I earned the product master designation, which required passing a bunch of different skills tests and making pizzas. But I consider myself two different people over the course of my life, before Israel Becca and then after Israel Becca. And while the experience and personality of before Israel Becca are important to my journey, she wasn't a particularly good person. I do say she is an attempt to distance myself Mm -hmm. from that personality today. I was spoiled growing up where I even had somebody to clean my house and I got almost everything I wanted. And before Israel Becca acted like the type of person you expect to come out of that. Mm. I was very entitled, rude, rather helpless, and full of excuses for everything. Everything that went wrong in my life was the fault of somebody else. It was never me. And anytime something was hard, I'd just give up. And I'm not embarrassed to say that because it's not at all who I am today. When I went to Israel, I touched the Western Wall. And at the time, I was like, it's an old wall. That's cool. I noticed later that there was a huge mind shift that I could source back to that moment. And I realized that I I, I wasn't who I wanted to be or even that good of a person. And... That realization just started at that moment. I'd grown deeply unhappy with fast food, but I lacked the confidence to leave. And within Mm. a year of returning from Israel, I had a new job. And I struggled to move through the typical interview processes, but was far more successful with autism internship programs. As the interview processes were augmented, be neurodivergent friendly. And I actually originally applied to a software company but I lacked the core skills they needed. And they referred me to my current employer where I got my role as an internship, PMO internship. And then two years later, I am a permanent and senior member of the team and have just moved to a lead position as of eight days ago. <laughs> Congratulations on that. Yeah, Thank it's you. exciting. What maybe prompted you to go to Israel in the first place? Because there's a sense I have is that maybe there was something that maybe there was something subconscious that you thought you needed, and that that kind of pushed you in this direction. Maybe, or how, how did it happen? Then I guess it's the question: How did you end up going to Israel? So there's a program for all Jewish young adults called Birthright, and it's a 10 day pay trip to Israel. And my mom encouraged me to apply, but I didn't want to go because I 
have anxiety and it was just, it was a lot. And Mm. she basically forced me on the plane. She's like, (laughs) filling out this application. It is a paid international trip. You're going. Fair enough. (laughs) And I wrote my answers. I applied actually to an autism program, which I am grateful for my mom finding that because I don't know that I would have been successful in the standard program, but she basically forced me onto the plane and it became one of the most important trips of my life. And I am forever grateful for her doing that. So you talk about before Israel Becker and after Israel Becker. So what did it bring out of you in terms of that you were suddenly able to almost maybe step outside yourself slightly and look at yourself and say, these are the things I'm not happy about. What, what did, what did that look like? So my poor parents, like, put this, like, (laughs) a-religious but relatively, like, Christian daughter – because my dad is Methodist. My mom is Jewish. So by Jewish law, I am Jewish because my mom is Jewish, her mom is Jewish, her mom is Jewish, and the way that it it passes through the mother. But my dad is Methodist, and he raised me Methodist because my mom just wasn't important to her. So they sent me – put me on this plane. I come back. And I had quit eating meat overnight. I was completely kosher. And they're like, what? (laughs) And I started taking Hebrew classes. So just like from a religious perspective, I became pretty deeply Jewish because of the significance of where I felt this mind shift took place. I mean, it was the Western Wall. So I felt a very deep connection to Judaism given where... I felt different. And then for the deeper changes, I became very aware of the privilege that I was born with and that I was born to an upper middle class family, a married mother and father that are still living and still together. My parents were very involved in my learning and development growing up and they paid for tutors. I mean, my success really was entrenched in the amount of effort my parents put into raising me. And I think coming to that awareness helped me dump some of the victim mentality that I become very entrenched in. I'd had so many mental health and disability diagnoses at that point that I had pretty much just given up and just believed I'd go nowhere. I mean, you get enough labels, you start to get really just discouraged as to why is my life this hard? And in my case, while yes, I had to work harder and to learn things. I didn't really have any friends because of autism and all sorts of stuff. My life was a breeze. Like, let's not get me wrong here. So I had my struggles, but I moved past it. And I'm now open about the struggles that I have in a way that may prove detrimental to my career one day. But that I am strongly hoping will help dismantle stigma around neurodivergence and individuals with an atypical career path. And the United States jobs are so important that we even define ourselves by our jobs. And Mm. if I can help someone reach a point where they can pay their bills by increasing employment, history, diversity, or any other way, I will consider my life very successful. That's amazing because it's very brave to put yourself out there. I think the atmosphere has changed somewhat. There is something of a sense that it's okay to kind of open up about certain things in more public forums now, even than was the case maybe three years ago. But it's still quite risky. I certainly feel that way myself. I guess it comes back to what you were talking about, about white lies and Mm -hmm. the rules of society that are hidden underneath the surface. So it could be 
I hope it's not the case, but it could be that the surface rule is, yes, let's all kind of share this stuff. But the unwritten rule underneath is people are like, aye, aye, I'm not sure about this. There's always that kind of sense underneath you, like, for me anyway, slightly worried, will this come back to haunt me at some point? And I don't know. I do distinctly wonder if the things that I post will, like, when I start to move up into leadership, like managing people. So if I ever wanted to become a leader of a team or the actual supervisor of a team or the actual supervisor for multiple teams, I do wonder if they'll look at me saying, oh, well, I'm diagnosed with this and they'll just choose somebody else. I'll never know. LinkedIn is where I post most of my story and I am very vulnerable on LinkedIn at times. And I'm also connected to very senior people at my company. So I don't know. I don't know what, if there is that unwritten rule. But Mm. at the same time, I feel that it is important because I was not given a chance until I was by the current company I'm at. And the amount of stigma I faced before I got here, I just feel like it's very important for me to be open about my struggle so other people do not fall into the same victim mentality that I did, which is I have all these diagnoses, so I shouldn't even try. I I just feel like it's very important to be open about these things for the future of other people, whereas the future down the line, I'll deal with the fallout if it comes. So (laughs) (laughs) that's my future me problem. (laughs) That's a good way of looking at it. So We've spoken a bit about your current employer. Why do you think you got the job there? Because you work in a bank right now, but your history that you've just gone through is, if you don't mind me saying, something of a schism there, isn't there, between that's rather, I hope you don't mind me saying, slightly ragtag bunch of different jobs doing different things and then go into this kind of something that looks, I was going to say something that looks more serious. And of course, that that is exactly the point you make on LinkedIn, which is that it's like, oh, well, well, bank, yes, fast food. Meh. And I, I've fallen into the trap that I promised myself I wouldn't. And I, even as somebody who understands the challenges of fast food, as more time has been between me and that job, I will sometimes fall into that trap because I was having a conversation with a senior person at my company and she was talking about a guy who had applied from a grocery store to the program and she had wanted me to talk to him and she was like, well, he hasn't really had a real job yet. And I'm like, eh. <laughs> and then she was like, shoot, because actually that day I was actually talking to the entire company about how there are very important marketable skills in that type of work. You just have to change your thinking about it. I mean, it is very tough work. The current job, how do you think you got that? I suppose it's quite hard to tell from the outside, maybe. So at the time, I was working in fast food. I had also returned to school to get a second degree in computer science. I despised it, to be perfectly honest, but I was very determined to make a better life for myself. And I was not able to both break out of fast food with the degree in marine science because they didn't really have any translatable skills into the type of environment that I was looking for. 
which was an office environment. I wasn't necessarily looking for tech, but an office environment. And marine science has very specific and really non-translatable education and very specific software. I was looking at autism internship programs anywhere in the country. And there's this huge stereotype that autistic people are good at programming. And at the time, while I was in a computer science program, I hated programming. And although this is now changed, I'm pretty good at programming now. I had no programming skills at the time. You asked me to pass a programming test, it wasn't going to happen. And I applied to a very large, well-known tech company to their autism internship program, and the recruiter chose my resume. I was not far enough along in those skills. And that recruiter, first off, one of the things that she did is she contacted me, and I've learned from LinkedIn that's not exactly, I wouldn't say a normal recruiter behavior, but it can be uncommon. And she called me and she told me, like, look, you interviewed great, but you literally don't have the skills for this position. And then she referred me to the Linkit program, which was the North Carolina program I described earlier, the employment autism employment program out of the governor's office. And it's really funny because it's linking innovative talent, but it's linking North Carolina talent IT. And they've actually tried to push away from the primary IT focus based on my success in a non-IT role because- oh. While I am a PMO for IT projects, primarily I support the program managers. I do not actually do the IT work. And I came in, I did an interview super day. And as for why they chose me, so they pulled my resume and they asked me to interview because the founder of the Neurodiversity Program actually worked in fast food himself. Yeah, he recognized that I would have translatable skills. Because one thing my resume showed, and this is something that I really stress now in anything I say is it showed progression in a fast food restaurant. I started as a delivery expert and I ended as a shift runner. So it was a progressive amount of responsibility and that's a big deal. And I had also been there for almost three years at that point. So he saw that and instead of getting stuck on fast food, he was like, fast food, but been promoted twice in just under three years. So he recommended he for me to come in and I came in and I interviewed as now why they chose me once I interviewed. I can't really say on that one. This is my favorite story of all time. My shoes actually disintegrated the sole. I didn't have dress shoes. And I had borrowed my mother's dress shoes out of the closet. But in order to get to the place to interview, it was two hours away. So I had to leave super early and I didn't want to wake up my parents. So I just grabbed shoes off the shelves. The shoes ended up being really old and the soles fell apart because they had not been taken care of and they were leather. And I essentially went from wearing dress clogs to wearing slippers with no bottom. And I had tracked leather sole everywhere and finally because I was tracking leather sole everywhere they just told me just and I was very embarrassed of course they just told me take off your shoes like and just you you, like you don't need those and so I literally went to all the interviews in my socks oh my god and I have to say while I am very big 
on not judging people. I think showing up to an interview without any background in socks, that might have pushed it a little bit. That's just a funny side note. And I don't make good eye contact. I've never made good eye contact. And I am, although not so much anymore, at the time I didn't believe in myself to the extent that I failed many interviews because I just, I didn't come across as confident. There's like a type of ideal candidate people look for. I see posts about it all the time. You want a candidate who makes eye contact and has a strong handshake. And actually I posted on that on LinkedIn multiple times about how ableist that is. And one time it made the LinkedIn news feed. The news team chose my post. And it's true. I did not check those boxes. And since then, I have been very successful. So despite the fact they looked past the shoes, they looked past the <laughs> fast food resume. Yeah, like they looked past the socks. They looked past the, fa- the fast food resume. I mean, they really tried with me. Yeah, you've said already there's a bit of a stereotype about autistic people being good at programming and, and I guess the kind of math side of things but that's not really where you are but actually a lot of the stuff that you talk about as successful in your LinkedIn post does relate to programming so do you think you've been pushed down that route Ace? I was not pushed down the programming route by the autism stereotype I was definitely pushed down the programming route by realizing that it can just make my life a lot easier and I actually was looking to expand on my Excel skills, and I clicked on a LinkedIn learning video about macros, and I didn't know what a macro was. No idea. And my job is very repetitive. We had to build the same reports by hand every week, send the same emails every week. We had other roles as well, but a huge time sink went into these repetitive tasks. A lot of autistic people like repetitive tasks. I do not. And I hated that aspect of my job. I I absolutely loathed it. And the video kicked off with, do you do something repetitively in Excel? And I was hooked. I was like, immediately, (laughs) tell me more. It started out with, I just learned very basic stuff. And as I learned more and more functionality, I learned how to integrate Excel into Outlook. So now Excel will do calculations, data analysis, and formatting, and then write an email for me based on all of that. And I have eliminated, in 2021 alone, through entirely self-taught skills, I calculated it using 360 user feedback from four different departments who have implemented my stuff. And it comes to over 900 hours of repetitive labor is just gone per year. So I'm working on other projects to uh, free up more time. I find the actual programming tedious and frustrating as I don't have any formal training to pull from everything I've learned since then. I taught myself and it's getting easier by far, but it's a lot of experimentation. I, part of the draw for me for work from home is I actually have a couch in my office and I have an office set up at home. I will go lay on that couch. I will shut my eyes and I will write essentially pseudocode in my head, run it until it works and the calculations come out correctly and then just go back on line and type it. And can't really do that in the office because there's a lot of distractions, but you also can't really do that in the office because I'd have to sit there with my eyes closed looking like I'm sleeping at my desk. But it is 
a huge time save to not have to go through and write everything out, run it through the computer when all I do is it make it appear in my mind and then run it and then just erase it. There's none of the clicking. You've mentioned a few people. You've mentioned your mum. You've mentioned this lady who was your recruiter. But are there any others who've been sort of instrumental in getting you to where you are now through the kind of journey that you've had? So many. It's just, I can't do the list justice in the time that we have. I would even go as far back as in in 2015, the GM of the fast food restaurant I worked at for a summer was so wonderful that when I felt I had nowhere else to go, I went back to that fast food chain. The recruiter who looked past my resume and saw potential and reached out to me and then did not drop me. Mm. She connected me with a new opportunity that I qualified for. The hiring manager who looked past the socks, looked past the <laughs> lack of eye contact, looked past the stammering, and the people who trained me, there. I was hired into this role with no background in project management, and people worked very hard to teach me the skills that I need to know or the, the skills and concepts I needed to know to be successful from coming from a job with zero background. And even like the guy who sat next to me in the office, he's been in corporate uh, America for 30 years and he's given, and he's been a great mentor to me. I'll call him up. I'll be like, Hey, I, I'm having this problem. Can you help me? But there's like many very senior people who take time out of their day and like a lot of time out of their day at some points to more mentor me. Like I mentioned earlier, the managing director who everybody else, like it was, it was comedic how many people I tried to look up to help me with an email before going up to that level. And he immediately was just like, yeah, just send me the email. And I'm like, okay. And he read it and returned it. There's a particular person in the organization and she has just gone way above and beyond she's a very senior director which again bank director higher than bp and she is also autistic and she is much older than i am and she was also diagnosed late in life so she has been instrumental to breaking down behavior and giving me formulas to follow socially in the workplace or explaining people's behavior to me in ways that they wouldn't explain. I'm just interested in that, Becca, the idea that there are, that what she's helping you with is kind of codes almost for how you deal with certain situations. I don't even know how some of them work. At one point... You just follow them. You, you've said, okay, yeah. in a situation X, then the procedure is Y, but you're not even sure why that procedure is the case. Yeah. It's it's amazing. It's, and I, I... A situation hasn't presented itself since that fit that particular thing, but it is... But that is kind of what she does. And she'll also come in. I will be confused that somebody's response to maybe something I said or done. And she'll explain that maybe what they said isn't what they mean. I don't mean this to say be in any way negative towards neurotypicals, but I will say what I mean. You don't really need to second guess what I say, but neurotypicals may 
as I have had explained to me, often have a response that doesn't quite match what they are reacting to or feel. And that can be very confusing from somebody who just says what they mean and says what they feel. Or are used to give work experience to A-level students. So A-level in the UK is age 16, 17, that kind of thing. And I had to explain to them that it's not acceptable to be constantly browsing social media yeah. on their phone in the office. And they're yeah. like, oh, right, okay. And so... The stuff that you talk about that people are helping you with because of your autism diagnosis sounds to me like really useful stuff that anybody would benefit from. And it just seems weird to me that that a lot of the time people just expect you to kind of pick this stuff up. Do you think there's a different culture where you are or is it because of your autism diagnosis or are they generally more supportive to new people coming into the office or, or what do you think? So this is my first job and it's my first company job. And I also came in through a different stream because I came in through an internship program that was structured. It was designed specifically to provide these types of personalized services to autistic people. So one of the things, for instance, that they did for me is fast food and corporate completely different worlds. Fast food, you can talk about anything. Corporate, there's HR. HR is a thing. So I literally had my job coach write down on paper a list of this is what is appropriate to talk about and this is what you do not touch in this environment. Yeah, other people definitely don't get something that structured. Because I'm autistic, I can't say what the neurotypical mind knows. I know for me, from my experience, I had to learn and I had to have explained to me the different cultures because I don't pick up on that. And so I really can't answer that question because when my entry to my first and only corporate job is just different and my brain works differently. And I will say the neurotypical brain is a bit of a mystery to me and I can't completely understand what neurotypicals know and how they learn it and what is needs to be taught to neurotypicals, whereas I do feel like I need to be taught most things when interacting in a structured environment where I can get myself in trouble with things I don't know. So okay. did you ever have a dream job or a dream career? And do you have one now? And the reason I ask is because you mentioned earlier on about the marine science side of things. And that seems to have gone now. So I don't know, I'm guessing maybe you wanted to be something like that? So I actually wanted to be a marine scientist since I knew what jobs were. That was, I was going to be a field worker. I didn't want to be ever be confined to an office. Like young me would not recognize anything to do with me today. I had the internship that I was let go. So it ever since then, I, I've had a series of, I want to do this. So after literally over two decades, I found I didn't want to do marine science and I was lost. I wrote a post about how in nine months, Everything after graduation, everything I had worked for for my whole life was derailed. And then when I moved to fast food, I wanted to run a store. That was what I wanted to do. And then there was various restructurings. I didn't end up getting along with the new management that came in. And I started looking for a new job and was like this, okay, I'm not going to end up being able to work 
and be in charge of a store. And I now am very focused on the now because, I mean, three years ago, I accepted a job that I didn't know what it meant. People on day one during when we we all were sitting in a hall, all the new hires had orientation. People were saying what they were hired to do. And I actually couldn't even tell them what my job title was because I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what project management was. I have found that I am very gifted at this field. I like it a lot, but I don't necessarily look forward to a dream job anymore. Right now, I have a plan of what I can implement here. And that is what I'm focusing on is producing my best work and improving things here. And I will make decisions as they come. But I've learned that my situation and plans have changed so dramatically over the years that I I don't feel like setting my eyes 20 years down the road is helpful to me. I guess uh, kind of two or three things that I follow your LinkedIn post for. One is insights on autism. Another is, I guess, the, the stuff that you talk about. You talk a lot about your Jewish identity and also, to a lesser extent, your sexuality. You've talked a bit about the autism side of things and why did you want to sort of stick your head above the parapet there? And I totally get that. But for the stuff around your identity and your sexuality and your religion, what's the logic there? Because that that's really tough. Some of the, the kind of fire you must take for those posts. So why do you do it? <laughs> in, a, in a short question. So I truly get more hate online for being Jewish over gay, which I am not quite sure what to make of. Nobody should be hated for their identities at all. And I will start by saying the fact that I know I can be out and Jewish without professional repercussions in my company. And while I cannot speak to the culture of any other businesses, because as I said, this is my first uh, professional job, my current employer has directors and managing directors who identify themselves as LGBTQIA plus members in their email signature. The company champions LGBTQIA employees internally and externally on social media platforms. And it's just wonderful. And my company supports me more than some members of my family did. And it's honestly been very healing as somebody from a relatively like suburban South area of Southeast of the United States that it is uh, very commonly referred to as the Bible Belt. It was not easy being a teenager and, and gay. Although at the time, like I identified differently. I was the head of the GSA in high school and there was a lot of trauma. What's GSA? I'm sorry. That. Gay Straight Alliance. Okay. So I was the founder and you want to talk about a lightning rod, try putting that in a teenage setting. It's very healing to see these directors and managing directors and people I very much look up to and who take a lot of time to talk to me once I expressed how much their presence really just means to me. The fact that they are there, they're in a leadership role. It's it's just been so important to me. But I, I do wish I could be more positive about being vocally Jewish online. I'm certainly supported within my company on this, but in the LinkedIn and Facebook, yeah, the hate has been pretty hard. But the reason I am so vocal 
is that the United States FBI released statistics that although Jews make up less than 2% of the U.S. population, were 60% of religiously-based hate crimes. And that's not okay. And then Auschwitz was just vandalized in October 2021. And if we're quiet about it, it'll get worse. So that's what it comes down to is that I, I'm more afraid of what will happen if I stay quiet than if I don't. That's incredible. First thing to say is how brave I think you are to just repeat that because it's, I, I was going to say it's easy. That, that's, that, that's a bit judgmental, I guess, but it, it is easier to kind of keep your head down on stuff, isn't it? And that's understandable considering the absolute bile and vitriol that, that, that comes across on the internet. So yeah, I take my hat off to you. It's really incredible. So this is a theme that's emerged a few times when I've spoken to people is this idea of bringing your whole self to work. And it's kind of superficially attractive, you know, this idea that, yeah, you know, you can be the person you feel most comfortable with at work. And I guess this comes back to this idea of what are the superficial rules and what are the real, in inverted commas, rules. So the superficial rule is, yes, bring your whole self to work. And then the real rule is, don't bring too much of yourself to work. And one of the things that, that you might have picked up from, from listening to other podcasts that I've done is I was and have been for a long time very open about my mental health. So I uh, had depression for, it's coming up for 10 years now. And so at the beginning, it, it's a bit passe to talk about depression now. But 10 years ago, when I was talking about it, it was, people were a bit like, oh, okay, and didn't really know what to say to me or anything. And it's been brought up and used against me at times. And it did make me question whether it was such a good idea to bring that version of my whole self to work. And I guess I'm looking for your opinion on that. It feels like it feels like you get to bring your whole self, if, for want of a better phrase, to work, or at least the parts of it that you're willing to share with your work colleagues. Do you feel comfortable with that? Or do you think it's a good thing? Or are there boundaries there, do you think? I would say that it's easier to bring my whole self to work now because I entered the company through a neurodiversity program. Sure. And yeah. those who interacted with me the most literally went through a training program on how to support me the best and how to interact with me the most. But I actually don't seem to have the ability to mask, which means appear to behave neurotypically as many autistic women do. That's one of the biggest reasons people will say autistic people are or autistic women particularly are often overlooked until later in their life and diagnosed with other things besides autism, is that they're able to blend in with neurotypicals by mimicking their behavior. And I've tried at two jobs in the past, and I've lost to mask and just get along. And I was fired from both because I couldn't handle the stress. But now in the office, the, the first thing anybody asked me are like, how are the cats and the plants? And actually, my coworker for my birthday gave me a cat-friendly plant. Like, the cats could eat it and be fine. It was an orchid, so it's non-toxic. Nice. Um, Good combo. I have not asked him if he knew it was non-toxic, because I have to say, huge brownie points if he did the research. I know off the top <laughs> of my head. Because that's my interest. And anytime I talk to a coworker, I go catch up with a coworker. It's how are the plants doing? And then like some of them will know, some of them even know that like I had 
a spider mite problem. Like it gets down to a spider mite is a, a type of pest that kills plants that I have been fighting off of my plants. I mean, they they really that's a lot of detail. Yeah. De- yeah, they ask for these details and they are absorbing these details. And it's actually really funny because my parents have my whole life set boundaries with how much I talk about the, my interests because it can become overpowering and it can drive people away. Right. And it has in my life. It has certainly done that to people where people have told me, look, I, I just find you boring because you only talk about this one thing. They're, they're being and, a bit, is it me or are they being a bit brutally honest with their feelings? Yeah, okay. <laughs> it was teenagers. Teenage. Are hard. Oh, right. teenagers yeah, yeah, teenagers are hard. But so I have driven people away. So I had learned to kind of internalize my interests. And honestly, my coworkers have kind of coaxed some of my interests out by being interested. And while I I was looking for a house, they were talking me through like how to look for a house because it's really complicated in the US. I don't know how it's like in the UK. Sounds sounds Um, about the same. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So they've been through it. They're older. This is my first corporate job. I don't know if everywhere is like this. Off of my what I read on LinkedIn, I can be my whole self at work, but I can't advise us the case everywhere because of what I read. And another thing that I like and that I do is my office is business casual, as business casual dress code. I like very, very, very flowy and formal dresses. So I will essentially go to one, when we did go to the office, I go to the office in full length ball gowns and sneakers because shoes bother me. Nobody treats me any different because I'm dressed up. And most people are very curious about autism and they will ask me questions about autism, but it's never been used against me. But at the same time, the results that I produce are very, very tangible. I'm a very high performer. I'm a very recognized resource in my company. So I think when I've proven myself... That while I'm eccentric, I'm effective. I'm very early in my career. And I do wonder if one day I will go to some company for some lead role if I'm in a, in a different place where I feel a little bit more ready for that and will be judged and dismissed for content I wrote when I was 26, 28 saying I don't do well with conflict. And while something I'm working really hard on and that I hope to overcome in the future. So I don't feel like today in my role, I am treated any differently. If anything, I would say that I am respected more for being myself. I don't know that will be the case in the future because I think that I might be true transparent. I just don't know. Yeah. Although part of me then thinks, well, you know, screw them. If they're going to kind of push back on you for something like that, then my thought would be, well, they're not the right place to be. But of course, that's taken from a position where you don't yeah. need the money. You know? I'm very selective about anywhere I will work. And I'm not ready to move on from my current company. If I ever become ready to move on to my current company, I am going to be very selective and very open because if you are going to reject me for being autistic, yeah. the future company, if they're going to reject me for being autistic, I want that rejection because if I try to mask in an interview, get the job, the, and I would have had a problem during the interview process, 
then I am going to fail in that job. I have learned in this position of being myself that I need to be myself. And maybe that's just me being spoiled at this point. (laughs) I need my pretty dresses. But the other thing at my job now is that even with everything that I say and everything that I put out there, I am given almost complete freedom at my job at this point. I have deliverables that I have to produce How I get them done, as long as I get them done, nobody cares. They've reduced those deliverables to allow me to be innovative. And I will spend time doing research into programming languages that may help my team. I will never work for an environment different than one that trusts me and treats me for me again. But just to say... A huge, huge thank you for the honesty because there's a lot of subjects in there that on paper you think this is pretty tough stuff, but you, you've mm-hmm. been so gracious and so honest in the way that you've talked about. It's been really eye-opening for me and I'm sure it will be for people who listen to the podcast. So I just wanted to say thank you. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you inviting me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Well, there you have it. Huge thanks to Becca for taking the time to talk to me and for being so brave and honest. Thanks also, as ever, to Julian Holmes for his awesome cover artwork and for the occasional bit of artistry to help me get some traction on LinkedIn. Thanks to Anna Gunn for editing, to Acast for hosting the podcast, and of course, to you for listening. Remember, if you think you could add some flavour to Serendipity Soup, get in touch. You can email me at soupofserendipity, or one word, at gmail.com, Message me on LinkedIn or tweet me using the handle at soup serendipity. Thanks again for listening and see you soon for another serving.